think our physician colleagues and the other power brokers in medicine are holding in two hands the fact that they hear the advocacy push, but they don't always see the internal push for excellence. And that is something that we need to speak about more loudly. Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP, and PA, the relationship between the clinicians and facilities, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant who's been in the business for 20 years. I'm also the vice president of advanced practice provider services at Ivy Clinicians, and I'm very excited to bring you this podcast. To all the emergency medicine clinicians out there, we know what you go through and we appreciate you. I'm very excited today and and happy to host our guest, Joel Reese, emergency medicine PA. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to get started. Why don't we start uh, today by uh, telling our audience a little bit about a brief story about your journey to becoming an emergency medicine leader. Yeah, I think uh, my journey mirrors a lot of emergency medicine, advanced practice leaders. I started just as a regular uh, clinical PA and and loved it, but I reached a point in my career where I felt comfortable with the medicine and was looking for another challenge. And uh, when I looked forward from my current position as a practicing PA, I didn't see a lot of opportunity for growth or leadership. The leadership positions in my institution and in my organization were all held by Um, nurses or physicians, and I didn't see a lot of advanced practice leadership opportunity. Uh, So essentially, I was left to pioneer my role and make myself useful enough that I I was worthy of a title and a little bit of extra pay. And I think that's probably something that uh, many have gone through a similar uh, trajectory on. Uh, Eventually, I was able to become director of operations for advanced providers within uh, our smaller emergency medicine group, overseeing multiple sites, multiple PAs, and uh, multiple locations, and then uh, have recently changed to um, help with the onboarding internship program for uh, Vituity in Central Indiana, and uh, will be functioning as a, a site lead advanced provider at one of their uh, hospital institutions. That's awesome. You know, one thing that I find interesting in in 2023, you talk about uh, trailblazing and pioneering and kind of creating a space for you to occupy. And I had a very similar experience when I started. 20 years ago, and as my uh, career progressed, and, and it's funny, uh, a good friend of mine referred a aspiring uh, PA uh, student who called me uh, yesterday and just, just was asking about the profession. And, and one of the things that he talked about, he didn't say it was a big concern. He just said, you know, I wonder about advancement and and doing things that, that keep me stimulated and, and a terminal degree. And is it is the end of the road just getting your degree and practicing? And I said, Listen, it's like buying a Ferrari. You can go around the block if you want to, or you can take this thing on the Autobahn. It's really, truly up to you. And I gave him a little bit of my my backstory, how there were no rules. There was no catalog. There was no title. There was no place on the shelf. I created all, all these things. And by the grace of God and, and uh, a, a lot of good fortune and good people around me, uh, it sounds like you had a similar experience. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there, there are no, well, there aren't in my institutions um, or historically have not been, you know, advanced practice directors or advanced practice leaders. And so all of those opportunities have gone to medical directors who are typically MDs or DOs or chief nursing officers who are nurses and occasionally a nurse practitioner. Uh, but to be a PA, you know, especially a young PA when I had graduated at 23, about 25, thinking the rest of my career may only be clinical work for the next 40 years was a little demoralizing. And I think is essentially what lit the fire for me to uh, try to seek out additional opportunity and additional ways to grow and advance my career. And you're right. Uh, it really, is, it can be what you make it. And, uh, uh, but finding those pathways does require the support of others. It requires good uh, physician leadership, good support, and good kind of collegial relationships with all of those kind of power brokers within medicine. Joel, to, to close out that thought, uh, this is something that is very near and dear to my heart is that when we're blessed uh, with opportunities that we broadcast this and and we share it with other folks uh, to let them know uh, the same way we were fortunate and, and received blessings is the same way that others should. I really hope to have you 
on uh, many more times on this uh, podcast so you could share your stories and, and others can can kind of hear from you and say, well, I, I, I can't recreate exactly what you did, Joel, but uh, I'd like to get some tips on how you, you did things. Because again, as you know, when we finish PA school, there is no manual that says, and this is how you go about becoming a PA leader. But uh, that, that that's more for future episodes. Let's move on to our our next kind of topic. Contributing factors of concerns regarding emergency medicine practice by NPs and PAs. Um, a little bit of background, as you know, and, and uh, folks listening, as I'm, as I'm sure most of you, if not all of you have heard, there's been an increase in broadcast information about concerns of EM practice by nurse practitioners and PAs. I noticed a, a spike in this uh, last spring when ASEP published their position on uh, restricting emergency medicine and PA scope of practice. Much of the focus uh, from what I saw, Joel, was uh, placed in two cat categories. One was insufficient education for the demand of the modern ED, and the other was undesirable outcomes by emergency medicine, NPs and Ps. Let's talk about the first one, and then we'll, we'll circle back to the second one. Tell us what you think about the current education experience for NPs and PAs and how that positions them for working in the emergency uh, department. And I'd like you to talk about how, in, in terms of new grads, uh, maybe new grads with a tailored emergency medicine develop, developmental training program, like fellowships, maybe post-grad education efforts, things like targeted CME and, and CAQ. Yeah, tell us about the current educational experience. Yeah, I think that's a great question and a broad question. Uh, there's lots of variability, and I think we should also give credit where credit is due and where we are appropriately challenged um, as a profession as it pertains to our education and our preparedness for the general you know, workforce, particularly in emergency medicine. And to that degree, there is some validity to ASEP's concern about our education as it is highly variable. That is, a, is something that I do think we need to take seriously. We need to take that caution and that criticism seriously, and we need to be very mindful about it. And I don't see that as a threat to our profession, but I see that as an opportunity to improve our preparedness, particularly in emergency medicine. And so you mentioned a couple of things that I think are important factors in that. For one, the, the big question that I think ASEP poses is how can someone with, you know, they throw out the number 500 clinical hours um, when they talk about nurse practitioners, or when they say 2,000 clinical hours when they talk about PAs, uh, compete with someone who's gotten 10,000 hours as a, a board-certified emergency medicine-trained physician. And they're right. There isn't a comparison there. However, what do they say then with my decade plus of emergency medicine experience and 20,000 clinical hours? So I do think there is a discrepancy there and there's, there's an opportunity there for us to address that. But we've got to start by addressing that at the ground level. Our, our training institutions, uh, some do provide a focus opportunity in emergency medicine uh, from our, you know, brand new PA students um, on up through graduation. And I think that should be encouraged. Most of our training is focused on primary care. And I agree that that's acceptable and, and appropriate based on the history of our profession. Uh, but increasingly, PAs are specializing and we're finding ourselves for longer periods of time in the same specialty. And um, after that time frame, we are kind of still held in the same position and category as new graduates. So there's a, there's a trade-off to be had there. I do think we're improving as a profession in training our new graduates in emergency medicine. There's lots of opportunities for this from preceptorship all the way on up to formal fellowships and then transition to practice programs, which I think are growing significantly. When I think about PAs who are leaving school and entering the emergency medicine workforce, the old approach was, you know, welcome to the department. Here's your first day. Hop on and, and let's work. Yeah. And increasingly, I think large groups and small groups alike are finding value in really committing some additional time to training their PAs. Internally, our group has noticed a significant increase in reimbursement, increased longevity, increased career satisfaction. When we commit that time up front, it is a cost. It does come at a little bit of cost of both in time and dollars, but it, it pays off in the long run. Uh, really, we've, we've made our investment back within about six months. So I do think that focusing on that transition to practice has to be important, but the, it's not standardized at this point in time. There is no 
board that's governing a transition to emergency medicine practice. We do have fellowship programs that can last a year or longer, but the emergency medicine workforce is in the tens of thousands for PAs. And we have, you know, 50 plus spots for PAs and fellowship programs this year. We're not going to meet that with fellowship training a lot alone, especially as you know, residents associations for emergency medicine are pushing back on the idea of PA and NP fellowship training. So we're going to have to get creative about how we do this. I do think there's a good opportunity here for our organizations and, and governing bodies to, to introduce a standardized transition to practice education curriculum so that we can address this issue more uh, robustly than simply introducing PAs to the emergency department um, in a trial by fire approach. I do think that the certificate of added qualification offered by NCCPA is a great opportunity. But again, I don't think it's seen by our physician colleagues as as valuable as I would hope it would be. Uh, and it's something that I think we could probably make more robust uh, so that it confers a little bit more credibility outside of the profession. I really like this idea and I share your sentiments about we as a profession being able to look inward and being honest and, and coming to a couple conclusions, which I would hope the overwhelming majority, if not all of our emergency medicine and, and potentially non-emergency medicine PAs would agree with. And here's one of those things. I don't ever believe that any brand new grad PA is ready to go into the emergency department and start working and just let them off the leash without some kind of very, very prescribed, structured uh, format uh, for professional development. And I, I think if we say that loud enough and often enough, we're just being honest with, with ourselves in our profession and saying, I wouldn't want that if my brother or my sister or nephew was doing that. I, I, would, I talk people out of that and say, whoa, 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 don't do that. You're gonna get abused. You're gonna feel bad about yourself and you're not a bad person. I think this is a point of agreement with our with our physician counterparts to say, hey, uh, you know, responsible EMPAs don't believe that PAs should be going to work in the emergency department right out of school. It sounds like you agree with that part, correct? Absolutely. I think this is must be reiterated, and and we need to be honest with our physician colleagues and say. Yeah, we hear the push and the call for independent practice, and we're proud of the hard work that our students have put in to, to gain the knowledge they have. Yet we need to be transparent and say we also hope to earn that by internal regulation and internal guidance so that we're the ones driving our quality metrics, so that we're the ones saying that we have proven through X, Y, and Z that we are capable of providing this care I think our physician colleagues and the other kind of power brokers in medicine are holding in two hands the fact that they hear the advocacy push, but they don't always see the internal push for excellence. And that is something that we need to speak about more loudly. Uh, agreed. Uh, and, and, and again, I'm so happy to hear you say it again. Plenty of more discussion on it, but uh, I, I'd like to emphasize what you just said about that we need to have more push of our own internal desire for excellence within our profession and let our physician uh, counterparts uh, hear that. You, you mentioned, you know, hey, well, what about me? Joel Reitz, I've got, you know, 10 plus years of experience. Uh, so physicians, you might be talking about, there's no way that PA should be going to work in the emergency department with the minimal training that they have. We've already, we've already discussed that. We, we don't agree with that either. But then what do you do with the Joel Reitz with, has this time of experience? And I think, that's currently uncharted waters. That's kind of akin to like social media uh, when it first burst on the scene and it was this powerful tool that we didn't even know the far reaches of its capabilities or its downward effects. We just knew it was powerful. And as time went on, we, we, we realized, hey, there's some kind of negative things about it, but there's some real powerful things you can do. And that's kind of how I look at the uh, PA profession in emergency medicine. We're this wildly complex capability uh, and, and it, it has to be utilized in the right way to gain the most benefit and to minimize you know, any adverse outcomes or, or bad experiences. I'd like to hit on one thing and, 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 and you mentioned it already. There's been lots of talk over the past year, few years actually, about 
independent practice it kind of started first with the nurse practitioners in, in general practice. Then if this is catching fire in some states uh, with physician assistant licensing boards. And I, I was at a conference, I don't know, about eight years ago or so to credentialing uh, a bunch of credentialers at hospitals. And they had asked me, they said, you know, what do you think about nurse practitioners? Should they get independent practice? And I said, listen, I, I, I'm no more qualified to comment on somebody else's profession than I am for physical therapists or respiratory uh, therapists. But I'm fully qualified to, I feel, to talk about uh, PAs in emergency medicine. And I don't know of any PA that thinks that widespread, we should practice independently without any supervision connection, availability in the emergency department. Would you find this, do you find the same thing? I think that there is a big swath of PAs in emergency medicine that feel just like you do, that, that we need the collaboration, we need the support. And, and that's, that is how I feel. You know, I didn't have drilled into my brain repeatedly through, you know, residency and fellowship training, the nuances of, pediatric, you know, febrile seizure management. I, I know how to do that now, but there's times in my career where I would not have understood that well. And to have support in those critical cases is crucial. And I think reflective of our training, I do think there is a growing consensus that PAs are feeling that push from the nurse practitioners. They're feeling that the nurse practitioners are going to achieve independent practice. And in many states already have, I think it's 20 plus now. And so they feel the market competition with nurse practitioners to push for that themselves. And it may be appropriate in some instances, particularly in family medicine or something that we're more directly trained for. However, in emergency medicine, I think that there's a big risk there. And having the support and collaboration of a physician is very important. It's, you know, I would not be comfortable in emergency medicine 10 years into my career, having not had robust support by an excellent group of physicians. And so maintaining that is correct. I do worry that as more and more PAs are pushing for independent practice, we're not taking the necessary steps, the internal steps to support that push. And I do think that is a, a fair critique and criticism. I don't think that our PA programs are teaching towards independent practice. I don't think we're precepting our students towards independent practice. Agreed. I don't think we've developed enough academic uh, support after graduation to support independent practice, particularly in emergency medicine, but I'm sure that extends also to other specialties. If this is our common goal, if this is the direction that our profession chooses to go, then we definitely need to change our internal standards. And that is, for me, a, a big area of concern and uh, something I think that we're going to have to deal with one way or another, or we're going to suffer the consequences professionally. Yeah. Uh, I, I love how you frame this. It's one thing to wake up one day and say, I want this label and this, this freedom uh, to practice all of a sudden with a wider scope, but we didn't change anything on the front end on our training didactically or uh, in, in clinical clerkships to do that. That's, that's perfect. I'd, I'd I didn't think about putting it that way, but that's very succinct. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure, I am the Vice President of Advanced Practice Provider Services at Ivy. And I joined because I was frustrated with the emergency medicine job search. And I'm guessing you might be frustrated too. I also believe that EM, NPs, and PAs have and will continue to provide valuable contributions to the ED by expanding access to quality emergency medicine care to patients. I am very passionate that when the right EM, NP, and PA are matched with the right ED, then emergency physicians and EM, NPs, and PAs create a most powerful team best equipped to tackle the modern and future challenges of emergency medicine. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the Emergency Medicine Workforce, where you can find all 5,549 EDs, filter by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure, and you pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io, and when you find the right job for you on Ivy, we will send you a bottle of champagne to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right. Let's get back to the show.
let's move on to a different uh, a topic, supervision. You know, uh, I'd mentioned, I discussed this with, with another colleague not too long ago, uh, you know, and I just mentioned how, you know, a, an analog of PA practice in emergency medicine is this, this new kind of capability. I say new that we've been doing this, but still it's in its infancy. Uh, you know, if you look how long emergency medicine uh, has been around, not that long. And I feel that the industry and certainly supervising physicians through no fault of anybody, they weren't exactly sure how to use us. Sure, if you look at the trajectory, we started off in fast track. Then ERs got busier and docs got busier and they said, well, maybe Joel can do a little bit more than fast track. Yeah, let's have him do a little bit more. Then we said, hey, he can do some procedures. Yeah, yeah, let's have him do some procedures. And then we found out, you know, Joel can completely dominate all the mid-acuity uh, here and, and we can't find another physician or it's cost prohibitive. Yeah, let's do that. And then we started moving into the high acuity. So, you know what, Joel can manage some high acuity and, and some critical care and admit people to the unit and, and do these things. And I, I just feel that the industry moved so quickly that the industry as a whole, all players, felt like they didn't have enough time to wrap their arms around this moving fast uh, capability. And so there's episodes of not great supervision. There's episodes of not great outcomes. But I feel that there are many hands that put their hands into this making. I think there's well-intending. I've been so fortunate to have good supervising physicians, but I would be remiss if I didn't witness a bad episode of bad supervision, insufficient supervision, or no supervision. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with that? Yeah, I've... I feel fortunate to have witnessed this from multiple perspectives. Um, when I started in emergency medicine, I worked with a group that staffed and saw every patient that I saw, which was a phenomenal opportunity to learn. Eventually, you can understand how that would become tiresome when that was all of your suture removals and your ankle sprains and your low acuity patients, as well as your high acuity patients. But because of that approach where the physician saw every patient, I did get the privilege of caring for a very high level of acuity. Um, and so I saw supervision as a two-way street. There was the annoyance of the low acuity supervision that I felt was entirely unnecessary, but the privilege of the high-level care and critical care that I also got to engage in with the support of the physician. And it was a phenomenal learning opportunity, gave me a lot of confidence, and I have been super grateful to have had that experience. Then conversely, there are departments that I've worked in that are notably less interested in supervision to the extent that the physicians may just kind of coast through their shift while the APs do the majority of the work and sometimes stretch themselves beyond their comfort level, especially with new grads or those who haven't been in emergency medicine very long. And so it is a two-way street. And I think ASAP even acknowledges that in their statement on uh, advanced practice provider utilization in the department, they talk about how there must be a reasonable level of comfort that is dictated by the physician in the department based on the comfort with that advanced provider and that advanced provider's experience level. And so I can see them also grappling with what do we do with this variably trained and variable experience group of advanced providers, you know, and that, that can be a challenge. I do think it's a challenge. It's a question that we're going to have to answer. And another opportunity for us to take the lead on saying with X, Y, and Z, we support those providers to be able to do X, Y, and Z. I think that is an opportunity for us to say with the certificate of added qualification, an advanced provider should be capable of X, Y, and Z in response to the policy recommendations from ASAP and others. So I do think supervision and collaboration is important in the department. I do think it's critical. I think it, it works best when it's in an individual level with a good knowledge of your coworkers, your physicians, and your advanced providers. And I think it's a must-have for, for advanced providers in every situation to have someone who they can be comfortable taking a case to. Must it be every case? I don't think it needs to be. But as we look to grow and advance our skill set, is it very helpful? Yes, it certainly is. And and so there's there's kind of a mixed bag. And I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head. This is one of those situations where we don't really know what we have. We don't really understand how to use the advanced provider with 10 years of experience and the advanced provider with five years and one year and six months. 
And I think that's a, an area that we can step in to start to say, we expect X, Y, and Z. This is the career trajectory we expect for our advanced providers. Conversely, I also think that there is some discrepancy between advanced providers and PAs in general about what they want out of emergency medicine. There are some who only want the urgent care experience or the fast track experience. They don't want that higher acuity. Mm -hmm. And there are some who do. And so when you find yourself in a department where the nature of the department is we're comfortable with our lower acuity and we're happy to hand off our higher acuity, that I think can be potentially deleterious to the advanced provider role in that department as a whole and to the reputation of PAs and NPs. We should be wanting to grow. We should be wanting that next level of knowledge. We should be wanting those advanced procedures. That's my heart for the PA profession is we should look at every opportunity and, and take it as an opportunity to grow and advance our careers, to become excellent in our departments, to provide service to our departments, to provide service to our patients. And if we're not taking those opportunities, I worry that we are settling into a role that that may be underutilized, or that may be underutilized and prohibit our growth in the future. So I used to sit on the licensing board for the state of uh, Tennessee for PAs, and then I became the chairman. I was fortunate to serve in that role in four years. And uh, the assistant attorney general would bring uh, complaints about patient complaints or practice for PAs. And that was just one, one slice of the job, a lot of other slices. And we'd have to review and adjudicate. But what I'd find out look, uh, looking back at previous cases is anytime there was a complaint about, uh, about a PA in any kind of practice, there was never a query, uh, never a request to ask about who the supervising physician was. Because I, I always said, well, if, if there's bad practice going on with, with the PA, don't get me wrong. If, if, if it's something they should know better, then we'll have a talk and every, everybody, you, me, all of us should be accountable. But this is a team. Nobody, we, we don't have independent practice. And I'd like to know what are the parameters that the supervising physician put in for their practice? Do they have a delegation of authority set up? Do they have protocols set up? Uh, how often do they meet? Are they meeting at all? Are there a review of any kinds of notes in, in any kind? So, you know, as that pertains to emergency medicine, we've heard in the news, we'll continue to hear anecdotes of there was this horrible outcome for this patient in the emergency medicine that were treated by an NP and a PA. Well, again, as we all know, there is no independent practice right now in emergency uh, departments. So I always beg the question, hey, if anybody is going to complain, and they rightly should about a bad outcome, because the patient's the one who's being harmed. It's not about you. It's not about docs. It's not about anybody. It's about the patient. But if we're going to complain about a bad outcome, why aren't we addressing who were the supervisors and what was the mechanism in place? We're not out there practicing independently. And my thought is, despite what I've just told you, that I still think that the solution to how we tackle supervision in the emergency department because of the wide variability of, uh, of different PAs, I think that it's going to include more emphasis on local decision-making. I'm a firm believer that departments know how to utilize uh, uh, PAs and NPs. Your leadership and you, Joel, know how to utilize PAs and NPs at your site. You might come over to Mike's site and say, well, you guys do different. If I went to your site, I'd be lost. So I think that a local decision on how to use PAs and NPs is best because you can appraise uh, the clinician's knowledge and skill set. You can appraise what are the demands of the department in terms of patient volume, patient acuity, perhaps supportive services. Do we have ortho? Do we have cardiology? You know, what are things uh, like? I think the solution is going to be found more in that direction rather than a top-down universal approach. Quick thoughts on that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on that, that the local decision-making is going to be what's required. However, I do think we need to create pathways or benchmarks for PAs with experience so that an expectation level can be both aimed at by the PA who is trying to grow in their career and referenced by the site so that there's some understanding of, hey, at five years out, we are expecting advanced providers in the emergency department to, to have X, Y, and Z skills. That'll help our our cohort, and that will help the physician and other you know, leadership cohort understand that. And and uh, to your second issue on uh, complaints and patient care, man, I always just I I agree with you totally that there we need to investigate if supervision is a thing at all. Then supervision needs to be something that's assessed in those complaints and questions. However, every time a PA writes their name at the bottom of a chart, 
they should be a hundred percent satisfied in their medical decision, making the care for that patient. And I, I bust the chops of our PAs and new hires a lot on that. And I, when I interview them, I put them in a kind of theoretical scenario where the physician's pushing back on them on something they want to order and how would they deal with that? Because, you know, if, if the physician wants to you know tell them not to do something they feel needs to be done and they can't be satisfied with that chart at the end, then they shouldn't be putting their name on it. And, you know, it's, it is interesting to get the responses there because at times, uh, we too easily yield to what is the standard in that department or to easily yield to what the physician's recommendation is without satisfying our own medical decision-making. And I think that's a risk for us. So there is both hundred percent accountability for us on that, on the front end and another opportunity for us to prescribe some opportunities for benchmarking uh, as we move forward. Awesome. Great. L- let's talk about strategic objectives for emergency medicine, NPs, PAs, do you see opportunities for change in, in PA programs during the didactic phase? Do you see opportunities for change there? Yeah, I think PA programs in general are structured in a couple different ways. There's kind of the, the systems-based approach. There's more of a, a traditional medical approach. And I know that there are programs who have specific emergency medicine training. However, I don't think it's as clearly dictated that the training received by most PA students is focused in emergency medicine when you look through the the blueprints and guidelines. There's certainly topics that are relevant to emergency medicine, but the emergency medicine-based approach to those uh, situations or chief complaints or presentations is not clearly delineated. And so I do think there's an opportunity for that. Even in a smaller, unofficial way, I think emergency medicine interest groups is a great idea for PA programs. I know that there are many preceptors or PAs in emergency medicine who would love to be part of that, provide presentations, do case presentations or case reviews. But I do think that that is not always something that's focused on. Um, We may understand acute coronary syndrome, but do we understand the emergency department approach to acute coronary syndrome? Sure. That is kind of a different uh, topic. And so I think that there's some opportunity to improve our didactic training, not just to understand what's happening in a, in a disease process and how to treat a disease process, but how do you approach that undifferentiated patient? And so I don't see that that is definitely universally applied in PA programs. Additionally, I, I do think that those focus groups would make a big difference. That's something that definitely exists in most medical schools. It helps potential uh, employers know I've been interested in this for some time. It gives opportunity for additional training. And so, you know, for PA educators out there, if your program has that, great. If not, consider looking into something along those lines, asking your PA preceptors who work for your program in emergency medicine to sponsor a group. And I think you'll have a lot of interest and probably improve your likelihood of getting those those patient or uh, those students' jobs. Yep. Uh, I completely agree with everything you said and, and uh, uh, there's a lot of information to develop uh, on a future discussion about what you just said because I, I do think uh, that there's opportunity there uh, in, in the didactic phase simply because the demands of, not only are the demands of medicine on the clinical level changing, but we know that there is a workforce problem. And if we know there is a workforce problem, it is inevitable that market forces will somehow move a PA from postgrad or near postgrad experience into uncharted waters, if for no other reason, just to start a patient encounter. It's going to happen. Which which leads me in, in, into my next uh, topic: uh, improving relationships with with ASEP. I believe that we work side by side with emergency physicians daily across America fairly well. I think, I think you'd find that everywhere. Like, man, we, we get along great. I think that your physicians get a sigh of relief when they see uh, your name on, on the schedule and say, oh, good, it's going to be a good day. Joel's coming in. I think uh, likewise, uh, there's PAs, NPs that show up to shift and they see a certain doc and say, oh, thank goodness they're working. It's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to be a good day. So I think we work side by side daily and we do it pretty, pretty well. There's a little concern. Uh, that there's some notable ASAP voices, doesn't represent all, uh, that may be contributing to a real or a potential unnecessary rift between the uh, emergency physician profession and that of EM and NPs and PAs, where I don't think one exists, I don't think one needs to develop. Um, I'm very good friends with a number of emergency uh, physicians, I'm sure you are too. 
from your point of view, Joel, what what are some of the things that we can do to prevent a deterioration in our relationship with emergency physicians? Or how to improve things where we are? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I echo your sentiment that I do think uh, in a clinical situation, we get along great. We are team members and provide excellent care to our patients. We are both you know, highly flexible in our roles. You know, I think we have a, a mutual goal of providing excellent care as efficiently as possible in emergent situations. And so for me, I agree in a clinical situation, we are great teammates and, and have great relationships. I think there is a degree to which our administrative structures and our uh, representing boards are concerned about professional growth, both from the PA perspective and the NP perspective and the physician perspective. And so, um, I understand those concerns. I can understand after the workforce uh, study indicating that there's a significant excess of emergency medicine residents, the concern about their long-term professional goals and outcomes and, and likelihood of job placement and pay. I think that unfortunately those are uh, really, they come down to having to, you know, wanting to eat your cake and have it too. You know, the reality of it is that we we're not going anywhere, and the PA and NP professions in emergency medicine we serve to inflate the wages of our physician colleagues, and that is a reality. I think most honest physicians would say that that's true. The reason that there are PAs and NPs in our departments is that we generate income. We get paid at thirty percent their rate and bill at eighty-five or one hundred percent their rate, and that extra pay does help support their income. And I'm not saying their income is not well-deserved. They work hard, they've trained hard, and they are certainly worthy of that pay. Unfortunately, they don't often see that we also have worked hard, trained hard, and we are worthy of high pay as well. And there's an opportunity there for us to work together to say that emergency medicine is valuable medicine across the board. And and realistically, I think we the physicians hurt their, their negotiation with payers when they pay us a fraction of their income because they Correct. show that emergency medicine can be provided at a at a lower cost. Correct. And so we need to be advocating for ourselves and we need to advocate together towards the payers to say, listen, emergency medicine is valuable and we can provide value. And I understand that the physicians are worthy of their high pay, but in many situations we're doing the similar work. We're doing it right alongside and we're, we're making fractions of the physician rate. And that that margin is going into their pockets or the hospital pocket. So um, we need to have better advocacy on that front, and we need to work together with our physician colleagues to, to advocate for higher wages, both for them and for us. And so that's one place that I think we can start. I do think that the biggest thing that we can do to support this concern from our physician colleagues is look internally. And, and I'm going to keep hitting that on the head because I think the answer for us is internal reflection and excellence in practice. When we are excellent at the bedside, when we are known in our departments for clinical excellence, when our patients are grateful for our care and glad to see us because we've provided great care to their loved one, their family member, when we are known in our departments and in our hospitals as providing great care and not just standard of care, but well above standard of care, we earn that role to sit at the table. We earn that role to have this negotiation. We earn that role to say to our physician colleagues, we are worthy of this pay. We want to grow with you guys. We want to, to be a part of this team. Unfortunately, there is some complacency within portions of the advanced provider workforce. And so do we always hit that on the head? No, there are great PAs and great NPs. There are bad PAs. There are bad NPs. There are great docs and there are bad docs. And so we need some honesty on our end. We need honesty on their end. And we need to realize that the best advocacy that we can provide starts at the bedside. Every patient encounter is a chance for professional advocacy. And that's, I think, how we close the gap. And that's not to be critical of our working PAs and NPs right now who are providing that great care. It's just to say, keep on providing that great care. Uh, keep on pushing yourself, stay up on your continuing medical education. And make sure that you are known in your department as a premier provider and that, that the nursing staff wants their family to see, that the patients want their family to see, that you would want your family to see. That's the way that we can really keep closing that gap and give ourselves the footing to make those next requests from our physician colleagues. One big takeaway for me from, from what you just talked about and, and something that we discussed when we first met 
uh, and I'd like to emphasize it. And again, I, I, I'm kind of, I'm going to adopt it, but I'm going to give you all credit and say, this is Joel Reed saying, is that excellence begins at, at the bedside. And I like that because it's just so true. And I agree with you that the way you take away ammunition from your critics or detractors is you do the thing that they say you can't do and you do it well. So uh, I think that's awesome. I think you mentioned uh, you hit on another thing, complacency. I, I think you and I know there's there's a lot of good players out there, NPs and MPs, just as there are our physicians. But you know, uh, physicians had this rigid structure, residency that they were brought on through this journey, and out came some kind of uniform standard of an emergency medicine physician. We've already talked about that doesn't exist for uh, PAs and, and NPs, and so this nexus, this this, uh, I live in this nebulous world uh, where there's all kinds of variability and folks don't know exactly what to do with me. I will say this. So to pair up your objective of clinical excellence beginning at the bedside, I think that a good pairing with that is leadership by PAs and NPs within the department. There is a difference if you pull me aside, Joel, and you're my PA director, and you say, hey, listen, uh, we just got off uh, the peer review committee. Uh, I'm on the peer review committee, Omar, or I'm on the utilization review. We, we have to talk about your CT usage, you know, your 1.8 standard deviations away from your peers. And I know you're not a dummy. I, I know you don't mean well. I know you're not lazy. But let's just talk about it. Let's look for areas of opportunity. I think that experience is different uh, on the receiving end when it comes from a peer PA than if it's coming from a physician. Or I think that there's a risk of a physician has to pull aside a PA that there might be a predisposition thought of, well, of course, Joel is doing this. He's a PA. He doesn't know how to do this. So I think to pair your objective of clinical excellence begins at the bedside, I think the way we start dealing with this nebulous cloud of where is PA practice in, in the emergency department? is we get more PAs on peer review committees, on utilization review committees, on performance indicator committees, and, and we have more of that back and forth uh, that way. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's crucial. I mean, that's, that's the way that we take ownership over our profession. Mm -hmm. And so much of our profession historically has been dictated by and, and led by the physician. We've, you know, been a physician assistant for decades. And so when we've had questions of utilization and, and care, those have come from physicians. When we have looked for guidance and collaboration and feedback and prescribing our practice roles, those come from physicians. And as we move into our own, kind of out of our adolescence as a profession, we need to be self-accountable. And the only way to do that is through willingness to support each other and willingness to jump into these positions. I think there's a lot of, and I use the word complacency before, but also hesitancy and there's imposter syndrome and there's all those real things that keep us from feeling like we are able to jump into the fray of leadership, of growth, and we shouldn't have those feelings. Everyone has those feelings. Our physician colleagues have those feelings. PAs have those feelings, NPs have those feelings, but we can't let those things keep us out of those opportunities for leadership and growth. And unfortunately, I think we do at times do that. We can take control of our profession, our future. And the way we start that is just, just like what you said, is you get into a committee and you start supporting that committee. And it doesn't have to be just, you know, care focus, but to be on a hospital committee, on a sepsis committee, on a throughput committee, on, uh, you know, infection control, quality, safety, whatever it is, be on a committee and, and help get your name out there, help get the PA profession out there, help start contributing to the conversation. And in so doing, you make yourself valuable and you, you help internally regulate without looking to physicians to externally regulate. And I think that that has to be one of our collective goals. Uh, awesome. To to totally agree. And again, I think that's another topic that deserves a lot of uh, exploration. I think that's an untapped uh, universe where uh, uh, emergency medicine MPs and PAs uh, can explore. And like you said, get your name out there. Just to put some final thoughts on the improving relationships 
with ASIPs and notes that I took. And and I agree with you, my own spin and and kind of blending them with some of your thoughts. PAs uh, are not going anywhere in emergency medicine. We're not going to disappear. Emergency medicine is a team sport for many reasons. Chief amongst them, there is a physician shortage, number one. And number two, there is a money shortage. And that money shortage dictates that across America, every ER cannot be staffed 100% exclusively by emergency physicians. So we're in this together. It's a team sport. And I truly, sincerely believe, at the risk of sounding like a cheerleader, that the best solution will come when the emergency physician workforce and the emergency uh, PA and MP workforce get together. That's where the best solution is going to come from. And, And lastly, Uh, I don't think, or I think we need to be cautious not to let insurance payers, you touched on this a little bit, not to let insurance payers or private equity muscle their interest in so hard that what happens is it drives a wedge between the emergency physician workforce and the emergency NPPA workforce. We should not let a third entity drive a wedge. The solution will will not come from that. Um, As we come... uh, come near to our close, um, I'd like to know how has leadership changed you? You've been doing this for a while, practicing, you've been trailblazing, you've been creating uh, positions of authority and leadership that didn't exist. How has it changed you, Joe? Yeah, another great question. I think when I started my career, I was very oblivious to some of these bigger issues and probably most oblivious to what it means to to really be a team player and a leader at the same time. One of the great joys I have from being in a position of leadership is imp- increased opportunity for mentorship. And probably the thing that drives me the most is, is giving opportunity to PAs that either previously haven't had it or haven't sought it or have felt stagnant in their career or are new to emergency medicine. And so what I realized is that in, in medicine, there's an opportunity to care for your patients, and that's why most of get into it. But what really drives for me a lot of joy is, is caring for our department. It's caring for the nursing staff that is, is doing this very hard work of emergency medicine nursing, and particularly hard in this situation and in this kind of time frame that we're in. And it's, it's caring for your fellow PA who's you know had a couple bad cases or a couple bad shifts. It's seeing that new grad through that first year where now they're starting to swim and it's starting to click and you can see the, the weight kind of lift. I, I love those moments. Um, it's, it's helping with the intubation. It's talking them through, um, those opportunities that are new to them. How, you know, when do I get to do my you know first central line? How do we do it? How can we practice? How can I support you? So caring for the department has been kind of my newer focus and, and I say newer, but it's been like that for now, you know, five or seven years. It's given me a new insight into really thinking through the, the issues that face the physicians. It's new insight into thinking through the issues that are facing nursing. And it's kind of more a holistic th- thought about the department than it is just my little role in it. And so um, having an opportunity to be in a position of leadership has given me greater appreciation for every one of those perspectives and a lot of humility and seeing it through the lens of someone else, someone else's profession. And so that has been a big blessing for me. It's been uh, definitely something that's changed in me. It's given me more fire. It's helped my burnout to be able to see, see somebody, you know, overcome something they were nervous about or concerned about before to, to make, you know, that shift a little easier for that nurse who had a bad case, the, you know, last shift, those things, those things make the difference for me now. So that, that's that been the, the big thing. It's, it's very humbling to be in the position of leadership. It's definitely given me insight into others' perspectives. And it's really in, improved my burnout by putting my focus on improving the the lives of others and improving the shifts of others and you know making that path smooth so that everyone can leave the department uh, on a high note. And so that's, that's what uh, leadership has really brought for me. That that's great uh, for all our, our our listeners. As I'm listening to uh, Joel, I'm I'm taken aback to 20 years of practice, 19 of which have been a leadership position. Everything that Joel uh, has said in my mind, it's encapsulated by being a servant uh, leader. 
And he talked about all the rewarding benefits of truly serving others. So for all of you out there not in a leadership position for considering it, it's work. What good things in life that are that are worth it is, is not work. But you'll find, as Joel said, very, very rewarding uh, on, a, on a personal basis. But then you also get to move the profession and shape the workforce. A couple lightning round uh, questions. Uh, Joel, what book or movie would you recommend to our audience? Great question. Well, my daughter and I are started in on the Harry Potter series. We just finished the uh, Sorcerer's Stone. We're two chapters into the next book. So um, that is where my reading attention is right now. And definitely you should read it. As an adult, it's even better, I think. So uh, go back into your Harry Potter files and read them again. It's worth it. Awesome. Uh, Joel, how can folks reach you if they'd like to reach you? Yeah, no, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, good luck spelling my last name. It's, it's R-U-E-T-Z. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I'd love to chat with you there. I'd love to collaborate about any of these issues more. I think there's a lot of opportunity to talk about this and collectively hear about this. I'm in the Midwest and practices may be very different elsewhere. I know in some very rural communities, they are different. I know in some, um, more you know, urban centers, they're different. And I, so I'd love to get more perspective you know, from others. I'm certainly interested and, and, uh, want to keep the conversation going. Folks, we've been listening to Joel Reitz, emergency medicine, physician assistant, leader. We've been very lucky uh, to have him. We hope to have him many more times. Uh, he's got some great ideas, concepts on how emergency medicine uh, PA practice should look. He's not just a talker. He's a doer. He's living uh, what he preaches. So, Joel, thank you very much uh, for joining us on this episode. Yeah, thank you, Omar. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a, a real privilege, and I'm excited to be a part of this next phase of emergency medicine practice for physician assistants and see kind of what comes down the pipe. I would like to thank our podcast producers, the great team at uh, Earfluence. And finally, a big thanks to you, the clinician. For over 20 years, I worked with you. I learned from you. I've been inspired by you. I know the sacrifices that you and your families have made. I know that challenges that you faced. And more importantly, I know your value to the market. Thank you all for listening to the Emergency NPNPA Workforce Podcast. I am Omar Nava. We'll catch you at the next episode. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.